Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. Today, we'll be talking to Amanda Lynch and Siri Valand about their new book, Urgency in the Anthropocene, out this year by MIT Press. This is a fascinating and trenchant analysis of the core beliefs and ideas that motivate current political responses to global warming. Lynch and Valen examine how the ostensible state of constant urgency we live in is identified and addressed in political discourse. With detailed analyses of major climate accords and theories of geoengineering, they demonstrate how this discourse limits our imagined possibilities for sustainability. Instead, they propose an ethos of coexistence that is receptive to how different societies and cultures interpret catastrophe. A pluralistic approach to the Anthropocene, they suggest, may allow us to achieve environmental sustainability while honoring human dignity and justice. Amanda Lynch is Distinguished Professor of Environmental Studies at Brown University and the Director of the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society. Siri Valand is Senior Researcher at Nordland Research Institute in Bodo, Norway. Siri and Amanda, welcome to the show, and it's a wonderful uh, opportunity here to talk to you about your your new book, Urgency in the Anthropocene. Uh, To start off today's interview, could you tell me a little bit of how you came to this project and how you came to work on it together? Um, I guess I'll I'll start, Siri, and then maybe you can correct me. Um, So, yeah, I've been... uh, I'd been thinking about a book that was bringing together a lot of the thoughts that I was having about um, the way the time scale of climate change was um, uh, ramping up. And, uh, and so I spent uh, a short kind of semi-sabbatical putting together some thoughts uh, about, you know, what that book might be like. And um, I submitted that to an editor um, just to get some feedback and what surprised me was that the editor said oh yes I want this book and and let's do this right now and I knew that I didn't have the capacity to do it right now and so um, so I turned to Siri to uh, to say you know do you want to write a book with me and I was very uh, lucky that she said yes, because in the end, the book that we wrote together is not the book that I had originally conceived of, and I think that it's a much better book because we we wrote it together. How do you think it changed from the initial uh, the the inceptive idea? Um, I'm in. A, the, I think that it's it's the the core of this is the way that Siri and I think differently, but we're compelled by many of the same kinds of questions. And so I'm much more instrumental in the way that I think I think about, you know, what are the practical policy um, 
uh, actions that you can take on the ground and how, how is that affected by um, uh, extreme phenomena and, and, you know, how do decisions really happen? And, and, and so I, I, I'm very much grounded in that, you know, some, somewhat dry, I guess, uh, thinking about the policy as a process, as a decision process. Whereas I think uh, Siri brings a much broader, um, more philosophical um, and more uh, wide-ranging um, set of uh, uh, thoughts and, and literatures to, to bring the human into it in, in a much more tangible way. That's, that's certainly um, the way I see it. Would you see it that way, Siri? No, I think, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think... Um... You know, one of the things that um, I was drawn to, to to working with you, just to you know take a, a few steps back, um, I uh, was hired by Amanda as a postdoc uh, back in 2013, and um, in the years prior, I'd, I'd been doing my PhD in Australia, and uh, I'd gone there to do research on on climate change in northern Australia, coming in very much as a environmental scientist and being challenged by my uh, supervisor at that time, Richie Howard, uh, very much to um, look at environmental change, not just from the perspective of science and positivist science, but to look into ontology and epistemology as well. So what sense of, uh, of being, what sense of experience of being in the world do uh, these, uh, this community of people I went to visit in Northern Australia, how, how do they experience um, that sense of being in the world and, and the changes that are going on in them? And uh, it was very challenging for me to go and do that because in that context, the climate change story became one possible explanation for the changes that people were observing in the world around them. Uh, and it was one story in the context of uh, in, in this particular context, um, Indigenous Australian worldviews. It was it was very challenging um, to kind of put my positivist background, my Western kind of background aside a little bit and uh, accept and agree that, okay, so this is one plausible story about how the world is changing and there are many others as well. And... Um, in coming to work with Amanda as well, I, I find it's uh, the way that we work together is that this very productive tension that happens in between that very uh, careful, predictive type of um, positivist approaches to looking at environmental change and the Anthropocene and so on, and that more constructivist sense of understanding the world and the changes that are going through, the way that people themselves are experiencing them. And uh, I, I think that productive tension comes out uh, in this book that we've written as well. Now, I would I would agree. And as I read it, uh, I thought one of the most, uh, one of the greatest contributions of the book was uh, particularly bringing together, as as you two just put it, the, the kind of technical... Um, uh, policy side of things with these larger questions about uh, epistemology and ontology that we get from writers like Donna Haraway and and Bruno Latour. And, and I think that's a unique aspect of this book and a very productive one. Um, and with what you were just saying, Siri, 
um, that kind of leads us into one of the kind of uh, the the leading contentions of the book, which is the idea that the Anthropocene is a myth um, or a, a, a certain kind of construction. Uh, can you explain a little bit about what is meant by that in the book? Do you want to take that one, Amanda? Um, sure, sure. So, so um, one of the um, fundamental underpinning ideas of the kind of policy analysis that I do is uh, is this idea of uh, myth not as a um, a story that is um, by definition untrue. There's no implication that a myth is necessarily false or factual. Um, but uh, but that uh, people's underlying myths, the stories they tell themselves about the world or their their um, their vision, their worldview, their frame, their narrative, um, their method, their epistemology, you know, it, it can it can be many different things, but it shapes how we uh, how we view the world. So in the policy tradition in the type of analysis that I do, we think about these ideas of myth as a way that people develop expectations about how the world will behave. Um, so there's no expectation that a myth is necessarily either false or true in an empirical sense. It is the frame by which we give the world meaning. And the important... Um, thing to understand about the idea of myth is that it is often so deeply accepted by the people who hold that myth as to be unquestioned. And what that means then in the context of climate change is that it limits our ability to, um, to envisage other ways of thinking about the problem and thereby other ways of potentially addressing the problem. And so, yeah, so we see this idea of myth as being a way of, um, uh, it, it, it's a way that necessarily constrains what we can think about when we think about solutions. Um, but it's also, a, by addressing it explicitly, it's a way that we can potentially open up the space for uh, new myths and thereby new solutions. Yes, and so one of the core components of of the the major myths that we have right now, or, or conceptions of global warming, is this sense of just uh, unbearable, impending urgency. Uh, how do you see that as uh, shaping the political possibilities that exist, and um, and what happens if we try to move beyond that? Um, Siri, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, I'd like to take a little detour by, uh, you know, uh, decolonizing research and decolonizing methodologies as well. Uh, when we think about what colonization is all about, it is about imposing a particular particular kind of myth about who we are and and how the world works around us, and you know, with with that myth. Uh, come doctrines and, and formulae for how, uh, how we are expected to to interact and behave and the kinds of solutions that, that come out of that. And certainly uh, one of the great lessons that, that I've taken out of um, 
working in the Indigenous Australian context is just that importance of accepting that that let's say Western European myth about the Australian context offers one sort of action arena. It's, it's one way of explaining uh, what's going on and, and one way of uh, envisaging possibilities, possible problems, possible solutions to them. And that if we are to take seriously uh, an agenda of, of decolonization, it, it does mean that we have to uh, accept that we're all operating within some a myth to some extent, without saying, like, like like Amanda is explaining here, that they're necessarily true or false, but that each of these myths within, you know, uh, we go through them in the book here, uh, Indigenous Australian cosmology and, and creation myths, uh, Western traditions for, for origin uh, stories and creation myths and so on. Each of these offer us uh, different possibilities to envisage, you know, well, what are the problems that we're seeing and what are the solutions that we're, we're willing to um, accept? And if, if we're all going to get in line uh, behind one sort of grand narrative of how the world works, um, we're, we're really going to be repeating the same uh, problems that underpin colonialism. So... Uh, and um, as part of that as well, there's an argument that uh, it's those enlightenment uh, epistemologies that to some extent have created the problems that we're trying to solve. And so um, by accepting this uh, idea of myth, um, we, we open up the possibilities for, for different policy options. Yeah, so so I think when we think about uh, urgency, what that means is um, that we can recognise that in the context of some worldviews, um, what's happening right now is um, is deeply unsettling and uh, creates a sense of fear and panic. Um, for other for other worldviews, uh, it can be interpreted in different ways, and so you know you see that in the practical political situations where, um, depending on um, depending on your politics and where you fall on the political spectrum, you might explain the changes that are happening in different ways, and thereby, you know, even determining whether you think it's a problem or not. Um, but we open that out even more broadly and say, you know, if you in, consider Indigenous ways of thinking where um, uh, where everything is happening in the now, or if you look back at kind of classical ideas of cycles and, and the fact that um, there is an ongoing cycle that will always return to the beginning. And so, you know, all of these different myths, you know, whether they be as, as um, I guess, prosaic as um, your political orientation or as deep as your uh, ethnic identity, that these, these things will determine whether you say, first, yes, there's a problem or no, there isn't. Second, um, humans have uh, agency to affect the outcome of the problem. And then third, uh, here's a selection of policy alternatives to respond to that problem. And so myth is invoked at every single step of that process. 
So we might say that myth is what sort of fills in the gaps in a yeah. sense, right? Where, the, where there's uncertainty, we're going to rely on our myths to kind of fill, fill those steps in to kind of make sense of what's going on. And, and it's important to be conscious of that. Um, particularly when, when we have urgency, when, uh, when there's a foreshortening of time and, and we sort of, we need to act now, uh, even more so we tend to sort of, focus in on, on what's familiar, what's known, and, and to sort of rely on those um, more familiar and more comfortable uh, explanations that we have. And so while, while this urgency is necessary for us to act, um, it's also important to be careful that uh, we're, we're cognizant of the kinds of myths that, that we're invoking in that urgency and, and whether or not they're ultimately um, uh the best explanations i suppose sure and and so in this book you explain um as one instance of this is how <clears throat> excuse me the ways that the un is reacting um or, or responding to climate change uh evidences certain kinds of of myths that are kind of built into the institution and that have developed over the past half a century or so as the UN has changed from a, a more of a, a treaty pact into this large um, governance uh, institution. Uh, can you explain a bit of how you see uh, major myths shaping uh, UN, the, the UN agreements that are that have developed in the last uh, 15, 20 years? Well, certainly, I think that um, the the uh, what we can really see in the way these agreements are going forward is that the sense of urgency is being invoked um, explicitly now. You know, since the Paris Agreement, um, as we note in the book, that um, the word urgent is used um, half a dozen times in the Paris Agreement and its preamble. It's not mentioned at all in the Kyoto Protocol or even in the Doha Amendment that extended the Kyoto Protocol because agreement was not reached in Copenhagen. So, so there's there's this sense that um, that there was in the early going because we had successes like the Montreal Protocol and like the World Trade Organization. Um, that there was a sense that our international institutions were up to the task of climate change. Um, but by the time we get to the Paris Agreement, there is this sense that, hang on, we haven't managed to deal with this in the way that we've dealt successfully with these kinds of internationally framed problems in the past. Um, and so there are two ways you can go with that. One is to double down on, on the international scope and to say this is still an international thing and it's just urgent and we have to do it and we have to motivate people to action. And the other way is to open up the conversation and say, well, actually maybe framing this as an irreducibly global problem was not the optimal solution. And so what we're seeing is both of those dynamics playing out uh, in even in the UN, um, not least, you know, around the world, but even within the UN, you have some components that are doubling down on the 
on on the global approach and just injecting the sense of urgency and going from two degrees to one and a half degrees. Um, and as a climate scientist, those numbers are kind of meaningless in terms of real impacts. Um, uh, but other parts of the UN are really thinking more about parceling this up into uh, smaller problems that are more tractable and perhaps can be solved through, you know, minilateral agreements or even, you know, individual actions within nations. And, and how do you see the relationship of, of that, uh, of this parceling up, to, um, to the challenge of responding not just to the... Um, the technical uh, aspects of climate change and um, CO2 in the atmosphere, but to the social and uh, and matters of environmental justice that um, shape how people and where people experience the consequences. You know, I think we're offering up uh, a bit of a critique and a, kind of taking a step back a little bit to look at how this evolving myth of the UN has uh, has changed uh, since uh, 1948, and uh, I think I think what we see is that there has been a constant negotiation and questioning and debate about um, you know what is the sort of underpinning myth of, of the United Nations and, and its uh, task of, uh, well, what has become the task of, of managing sustainability. You know, we're looking back at uh, when it was initiated, right? It's, it's the height of modernism uh, and uh, enlightenment and development. And we see over, over the decades since uh, this evolving attention to uh, how communities manage environmental change, environmental hazards and so on. Um, and there are, uh, you know, most recently uh, with the uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, um, they, there, there is a constant negotiation that's going on that I think uh, is also continuing to evolve. Um, we, we're talking a bit about the, some of the limitations of the United Nations myths for, for things to talk about, things like property rights and um, ten, tenure, land tenure. Um, and that, you know, some of the challenges and do lie with those modernist uh, enlightenment style traditions where we are wanting to measure sustainability we're wanting to measure climate change by this one degree uh, one and a half degrees two degrees we're wanting to measure it by GDP and, and so on that in in a sense we we remain somewhat limited by some of those um, um, legacies we have from the sort of foundational myths in the United Nations but um, it, it, it's also some, somehow the best that we've got <laughs> at yeah. the moment um, yeah, and I, I think too that that um, that's where we come to in this this idea, which which really you know I I credit uh, Siri with articulating uh, to me in a way that I understood was the, this idea of coexistence that um, that that we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. I mean that's the kind of very simplistic way that I that I think about it that. 
that there are going to be uh, myths that are going to be forever irreconcilable. And yet uh, in that context, we still need to move forward. And so when we're starting to make the link between, you know, this this kind of very uh, uh, deeply structured modernist way of thinking about the world and the um, and the uh, the myths that it was seeking to replace un- unsuccessfully. Um, the the um, indigenous myths of peoples around the world that um, that we we need to hold those things in tension as we move forward um, because it it is a matter of urgency. It is becoming a matter of um, of the uh, surviving and thriving of the human um, uh, human societies and possibly the species. I'm not sure I would go that far, but um, I certainly wouldn't make any predictions about how this is going to evolve in the future. But what we can see is that we need to be able to hold these irreconcilable myths uh, we need to, to hold them in tension, um, not to seek resolution, but to move forward with, uh, you know, a deep acceptance of those those uh, differing points of view and trying to find, and, and this is where a lot of my work comes from, is trying to find the common ground, uh, trying to find the places where we can move and we can make an impact. Yeah, and... You know, so part of this, <clears throat> and it's uh, it comes up a few times in the book and is a, a constant subtext, is is the need to um, uh, think seriously about history. And I'm thinking particularly of the history of colonization, and um, and of course one of the you know sort of bedrock myths of the United Nations is that. Uh, we're uh, in a post-colonial world and that, that we've moved on from there. Right. Um, and can you tell me a, a little bit about how you see uh, that reconciliation uh, being important and how it might play out? Do you want to? I'll offer some thoughts. Um, yeah. yeah. I think that one of the the real strengths of of the United Nations is that it it is this deliberative forum where the 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 arena is about negotiating and talking about well, what 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 is the agenda what are we doing and and rearticulating that in new ways and uh, I think I think in particular this um, permanent forum for Indigenous issues is is one such place where we can just allow the fertile ground for those ideas to come up. Uh, like Amanda saying, I'm not sure I want to be um, predicting or, or previewing, you know, what that's going to be looking like. But I, I think, um, yeah, that, 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 that strength of the United Nations is, is still there and it still is that deliberative forum. And I think those solutions will be coming up um, over the coming years. Well, and I think... Thoughts um, there, Amanda? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that um, yeah, there is this one one of the quotes that I really like uh, from the book is uh, from Bobby Sykes, who who talks about 
post-colonialism and, and says, have they left? Um, <laughs> but I, I think that, um, uh, you know, realising that uh, even as we're grappling with this idea that, you know, multilateral and international uh, treaty regimes um, impinge necessarily on sovereignty uh, and how you see that is going to be different according to what your personal myth is. At the same time, we have sovereignties uh, in the world that are not recognised at all, that don't have a seat at the table um, and and that are not part of the negotiation. That said, we are seeing forums in which that kind of uh, multiplicity of overlapping sovereignties is being dealt with uh, in more productive ways, and one of those places is the Arctic, where um, where you do have uh, Arctic Indigenous peoples who are um, involved very deeply in the policy uh, decisions that are being made uh, by the Arctic nations, and um, and there's no sense that you know the Russians or the Canadians are going to leave the Arctic. But at the same time, there's a recognition that there, there were nations that were there first and, and that, um, that have a, a voice in, in planning for the Arctic to go forward. So I think we do have models for how this process can go forward even as uh, the legacy of colonialism is not resolved and in some cases can't be resolved to any to any degree that um, that uh, would ultimately be entirely just um, and so and so recognizing that justice is perhaps you know just beyond our reach what what can we do that is maybe not going to be exactly what we want, but it's going to be enough. And this comes back to Herb Simon's idea of satisficing. So, you know, how, how can we get to a place where what we're doing is, is um, it's respectful, it acknowledges the tension, um, and it's enough without being the, the perfect vision of justice that we might all hope for. Right. Uh, I think that some of the the uh, most um, prominent uh, ideas or, or that get the most attention um, around, uh, especially in the public mind around this, is uh, attempts at, at geoengineering and um, and uh, and manifestos like the eco the eco modernist manifesto I'm thinking about, and uh, in this book. You know, you write that these are kind of these are based on a certain sort of myth about nature that is particular to uh, the Enlightenment in Western um, uh, and, and Western colonization um, and the forms of settler colonialism that developed over the last uh, 300 years or so. Um, do you think that that can be? Well, first of all, can you explain what, how you see that myth informing these responses and if it can be reconciled or, or worked through in this process? Um, yeah, well, I think that, you know, the, the eco-moderns are really, you know, it's 
it's there's such a it's such an interesting thread of thought. That's why we spend so much time on it in the book because, you know, particularly in the US, you had this very strong and deep um, tradition of the idea of wilderness and um, and the way that wilderness can you know is is represents some kind of perfect state and a lot of that comes out of you know romantic ideas of um, several hundred years ago but um, the the echo moderns are really you know they're, they're making the observation that well if you're going to if you're going to say this, if you're going to say that wilderness is perfect without humans and we should fence it off, then the necessary corollary of that is that we need to make spaces for humans to live that are similarly uh, separated from nature and and somewhat uh, sacrificial. And um, while I think that where they take that observation is uh, gets very much into this kind of technological optimism. Uh, at the same time, I really credit them with with making that clear that you can't have wilderness without having sacrifice zones. You, it's just you you can't have you can't have your cake and eat it too. You know, there's one planet, and so so the echo moderns, you know, coming through with this kind of very strong. Um, uh, positivist approach to, you know, having technology save us and sacrificing some places for others and, and indeed sacrificing humans' relationships with the non-human world uh, in, in order to survive. Um, you know, I think that comes from this very positivist ethos, but it, it originated in an observation that I think was very accurate. Hmm. Did you want to add add to it, Siri? I, uh, I do. Um, you know, one of the things that I found really fascinating that, that you touched on, Amanda, with the with the eco moderns, is that it, it is almost this kind of uh, a manifest destiny type uh, approach in the sense that it's about talking about a future that is almost uh, just emerging out of will and imagination. There's very little uh, in the way of concrete policy suggestions. They seem to want to uh, avoid that completely. And in, in so doing, I think, you know, they're, they're stepping outside of what becomes um, quite muddy, you know, um, you're, you're getting the devil's in the details, so to speak. And right. sometimes uh, I wonder if... Uh, getting too deep into policy and, and concrete sort of steps can limit the imagination somehow as well. So it, it's been quite interesting to read up on, on, on how uh, these eco-moderns think and the, some, of the, some of the solutions that are coming out uh, of, of, of those circles are, are quite intriguing. Uh, and, and then like Amanda saying, um, there's then the challenge of, you know, where, where will these lines be drawn? And, uh, you know, where's the human space and where is the natural space? And that brings up some some very uh, awkward and kind of fragile situations. Um, you know, an example also uh, from the Arctic uh, is the reintroduction of, of uh, carnivores into uh, northern Norway, for instance, where... Uh, 
reindeer herders uh, are moving their flocks around and um, because of these large predators being brought back in, uh, wanting to naturalise these environments, they're, they're predating um, the reindeer. But since the reindeer is supposed to be a domestic human stock, they should be kept apart. And so they've been uh, instructed to, to put up fences uh, to keep the reindeer safe from the predators, um, which, of course, doesn't work. <laughs> um, but but the intention's there and... and um, it's somehow where where the rubber meets the road that where the issues seem to seem to come up um, with these uh, eco eco modern approaches. Um, to some extent, um, if we want to touch on on the California fires that are ongoing as well, right? Is that we uh, part of this wilderness myth? The idea of sort of living living in these semi sort of wild areas where there's this forest surrounding, and there's there's an ideal of of living in those places and retiring in those places where, um, you know, old methods of fire or, or fire management um, are done to a very limited degree, and and you end up with these um, catastrophic fires um, for for multiple and complex reasons, but that take people by surprise um, and, and to some extent you know that that arises also from this idea of, of um, being able to be be human within this you know um, un, untouched wilderness somehow um, so uh, yeah so, so it, it was it was interesting for us to, to take a bit of a, a deep dive into eco-modernism and, and like I said it there, there's a lot of seemingly useful and fruitful ideas there and, and some of the challenges are well, how, how does that work in praxis and, and, and uh, a lot of the time yeah it does require um, these, these sacrifices. Right and uh, governance institutions that can uh, create this compel people to participate in this separation of humans and in this pure idea of nature right the, right which which yeah. i think you know that and that immediately invokes this this uh this idea of human dignity and you know to to what extent is it even appropriate to to think about um you know that kind of authoritarian approach to uh dealing with the problem sure uh, you know, so one way that you describe in the book this eco-modernist uh, approach is, is this notion of decoupling from nature. And, and this is a, you know, a long-standing Enlightenment idea that, that humans are becoming more and more separated from nature and we can continue this path. And by doing so, we, we preserve both of us. Um, and I think that there's an, you know, an, an opposite uh, opposing myth that uh, there's no, that will never, that, that that's an impossibility, that that uh, humans are always part of nature. In fact, we're only becoming more and more integrated as we develop more and more technologies. Um, and these seem just to be completely opposed ideas about uh, the basic ontology of the world. Do you think that both of them are can be functional in this idea of coexistence that you have? I, yeah, this is a good question. <laughs> I mean, I I I think that um, for me personally, the the idea of uh, decoupling from nature uh, completely seems not in not entirely 
possible. I mean, I, I think that, as Siri said, the devil's in the details. And I, I think that, you know, we're going to kind of get whacked every time by the fact that we're, you know, material be beings living in a material universe. Um, but at the same time, um, I I think, you know, as I said, that, that this idea of decoupling and the fact that uh, an ideal of wilderness actually invokes decoupling, even though it doesn't get talked about a lot, uh, means that we do need to think about, well, you know, are there... Are there going to be situations where that's important? And you know, it even you even have to start thinking about it when you start thinking about going off planet, which is you know something that uh, there are people working on and preparing for. Um, and uh, you know, that is the ultimate decoupling. And so, so I think that um, so I think that. You know, with all of these kinds of myths, uh, you know, be it the eco-moderns or the wilderness myth or, you know, the ways of knowing that uh, are among uh, Inuit or, or Australian Indigenous people or, you know, um, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks, that with all of these things, that the, the myths, uh, engaging with the myths is largely about opening your mind to the possibilities. And so rather than rejecting those myths out of hand, and so, you know, in the spirit of coexistence, what I would say is I wouldn't reject decoupling out of hand. I do see some issues with it as a practical policy alternative, but at the same time it does enable us to think about uh, some of these very um complex kind of responses like uh, off-planet settlements or, um, you know, extreme urbanisation. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I think also that, you know, the, the idea of decoupling for the eco-moderns means something quite different to how the United Nations talks about it and operationalises the idea of, of decoupling. And in a sense, it uh, it's a you know it's a formula for uh, or it's a, it's a means of closing a certain production. So we can think about plastics, uh, we can think about metals, uh, perhaps fabrics that you know, and and, and closing a a resource cycle so that it doesn't have spill on uh, envir environmental impacts outside of of that closed loop. System and I think you know as as a kind of formula that's probably feasible. When it becomes a myth for how humans should relate to or, or do relate to the environment, I think that's more where the troubles come up, and that that's where um, we, we we get those issues of well, if if we you know, and I'm thinking of um, E.O. Wilson's Half Earth here. Uh, also, you know that you know there, there are very specific um, narrations of, of what that decoupled planet uh, looks like, uh, and I, I think that's that's where I agree. I have a much harder time seeing that panning out as um, a realistic sort of goal, or even a goal that that we should want to aim for. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to be clear for listeners, you were talking about E.O. Wilson's idea of the half 
earth, right? Yeah. Yes. Just mm -hmm. to have that clear. Um, so this covers uh, my questions for you. Are there any aspects of this book that I've neglected to, to ask you about that you want to make sure are included here? Well, I did want to mention one thing um, in, in terms of uh, creation myths and, um, you know, in uh, in coming up with the idea for the book as well, uh, I, I remember it um, a little differently. It doesn't mean um, that it's not true. And I think, you know, in a sense, it's sort of an illustration of what it is we're trying to say, right? It's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we have uh, different ways of, of remembering and understanding and sort of projecting and it's, it's highly subjective and, and situational. Um, you know, uh, I remember uh, Amanda being visited by the editor and um, saying, hey, do, do you know, would you like to write a book? And, and us sitting down making uh, flowcharts and um, think maps, you know, to, to sort of mm. map out, you know, how and where do our ideas sort of gel um, and, uh, you know, how, how can we start to articulate a, a, a book draft? And I, I found that process to be, uh, just incredibly interesting and, and, and stimulating as well. And, uh, you know, we, we, we did that groundwork and I think um, it, it, it created a, a type of structure that uh, enabled us to um, just have uh, kind of an agreement of the kinds of concepts and terms that we wanted to talk about and, and you know, having that sort of common discourse uh, of, you know, the, the hooks that we're wanting to, to hang our analysis on was, was really helpful and, and really, um, um, yeah, aided us in, in, in writing what I think has become, you know, a decently readable book. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess the the um, the other uh, piece that I wanted to think about. Well, first off, I I do want to say. I mean, I think that uh, both of our creation stories of the book are, are true, um, and and uh, just kind of emphasise different different things. And so um, that that it's it is a really nice illustration of this uh, this idea of of myth. Um, the the other element of the book that I wanted to um, wanted to highlight was this uh, particular issue of uh, extremes, and um, that's that's something that I think is uh, is very very often seen as a motivator for policy. Um, by this idea that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, and so. Uh, so if you have a, a, a hurricane or a typhoon or you have a fire or you have a drought, um, that that these kinds of extremes tend to be where uh, we're really confronted by our, our ideas and our myths around um, our relationship with the uh, non-human world. And um, one of the things I think that is uh, an a really interesting future um, path to think about is um, how that discourse around extremes is uh, influencing the policy responses. Because I know that you know back back when Hurricane Katrina happened, all of us in the climate community thought, right, this is it. Everyone's going to act on climate change now because Katrina was just so devastating, and nothing happened. And and then we had a disaster after that, and a disaster after that, and and so this idea that somehow uh, whether disasters linked to climate or not 
uh, core, are a, a stimulus for policy in climate um, climate change. Uh, that that is an area that seems to be not as coupled as as we may have thought. Um, you know, in ten or fifteen years ago. Um, so what's really interesting about that is the science is starting to kind of catch up with that idea um, where um, the idea of being able to attribute uh, extreme weather events to climate change um, in particular ways, uh, that science is becoming more mature. And so what's going to be interesting in the future, I think, is, is whether that idea that... Uh, crises will prompt policy responses, whether that's going to come back into focus as, as the science catches up with the idea. Right. And, and, and uh, you know, we, we spend some time uh, in the book also um, cautioning a little bit um, to equate that ability to, to detect and measure an extreme event with the ability to muster a, a uh, response that's that's up to the task, in mm -hmm. a sense, and um, you know, cautioning a little bit that we don't. Um, and I, I think uh, Typhoon Haiyan was was a good example of that. You know, where uh, it it really was a, a case study in in excellent preparation for extreme events, but the event became so much greater than what was expected. Uh, it became a, a, a confluence of, uh, of factors that made it a much greater disaster than, than what they had even prepared for. And so we found um, it, it was not enough. Um, so uh, we, we, we do spend some time in the book just um, reminding ourselves of not, not getting uh, too caught up in the measurements and sort of quantification of the changes and, and paying equal attention to um, the ways that we prepare uh, ourselves uh, for those events. Yeah. I think I had one final point that I wanted to, to, to bring up as well. Um, that it speaks back to this uh, sort of underlying theme of, of colonization and decolonization as well, is that, you know, this, this Anthropocene narrative of, of, sort of apocalypse by our own hands, um, in a sense, it's it's the uh, it's the science, it's the Enlightenment story, kind of arriving at its own eschatology. Uh, eschatology, sorry, in a sense, right? It's it's um, when when you look at um, myths that explain the world, these cosmological myths, they usually have an origin story and they have an ending story. Uh, they have an eschatology, and um, here, in a sense, is the Enlightenment story that's come full circle, and, and it now also has an account for the ending of the world. And it's scary, and and um, it, it's sort of uh, that—that's what's bringing about this urgency. But it's, it's also important to remember that for peoples across the world, the world has ended many times uh, already. You know, thinking about you know white sails on the horizon and, and so on. Um, it's happened many times, and this particular time it's it's different, but there are lessons we can draw also from how people have managed these apocalyptic changes um, in the past, um, if, if we can take the time to, to listen um, to, to others. Yeah, I find that an especially inspiring note in the book, uh, especially as you say, the, you know, this, the culmination of the Enlightenment narrative for us now is either, you know, 
disaster or salvation from technology in there, there doesn't seem to be that uh, a gray zone um, as much. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, well, thank you so much. So uh, what are you uh, two working on now, individually or together? Um, well, we're still working together, actually, and, and Siri is taking the lead uh, in uh, we're, we're getting much more specific, I guess, getting back to, to case studies, which is where our insights ultimately come from uh, in, um, in the North Atlantic. So, uh, Siri, why don't you talk about that? Uh, sure. So, so we have a... a a collaboration ongoing. We, we've got some some funding from the National Science Foundation, uh, where um, we're looking at uh, human environment interactions in in the North uh, Barents Sea and in the Svalbard area. Um, where it, and it's it's also a highly interdisciplinary effort. Uh, I think it's it's going to be continuing uh, a lot of the same productive tensions that that have benefited us so far. Uh, we'll be uh, developing models for for sea ice and and ship traffic and considering how people who make planning decisions in the arctic make sense of 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 risks and uh, Mm. how they devise policy um, to manage those yeah so um, yeah that's that's what's next yeah well on the agenda for that um I, I hope to talk to you when that one comes out then, too. Right. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for your time. And, um, yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, yeah thanks very much. Yeah.